there are tons of ideologies that need critique in this uh, particular season that we're in. But these are two that seem to be the most charged, that people in our community have the most questions about, and that seem to have the most cultural momentum right now. So uh, these aren't necessarily polar opposites of each other. You, it would be probably be more intuitive to do capitalism and socialism or globalism and nationalism. But it seems like that these two have the most momentum, yet not a lot of depth of reflection. Now the chances are that you are coming into this tonight feeling like you've got some uh, a, a pretty harsh critique or, or very suspicious towards one of these, yet is are kind of empathetic toward one of these. Like you can kind of see where someone's going with it. My plea to you would be don't come into this conversation looking for bullets to win arguments with others, but rather look for the instruments that will help you take the log out of your own eye. If there's one of these that you tend to um, to be more empathetic towards, more sympathetic towards, actually look the hardest into the critiques of that one. Um, and, and with that said, the goal of tonight is to reflect on these two topics through the lens of the biblical story, identifying where there's some creational good, identifying where it goes awry and it's twisted from the fall, and um, I want you to take a deep breath right now and engage in this conversation with a, a, a posture of uh, stepping outside of the supercharged dialogue of, of social media. And let this be an opportunity to really reflect and to learn and to take a posture of a listener. Before introducing Bruce, I want to remind us of the season that we're in, we're, we're calling this the, the King of Kings campaign, where we've got these few months where we are really pushing into the idea of following Jesus in the midst of this campaign season, in this election season. And we have this King of Kings commitment, these 10 things that we've uh, signed on to, many of us have signed on to, to commit to uh, during this season. So, um, I'm going to go ahead and read those right now. I'm going to read all 10 of those commitments. And I, I want those 10 commitments to really define our posture for tonight. So number one is worship. I commit my allegiance to King Jesus over all other idols and ideologies. Number two is love of neighbor. I commit to participating in civic life as a means of loving and serving my neighbor rather than just serving my own interests. Number three, image of God. I commit to honoring the image of God in all people by treating them with respect and abstaining from dehumanizing caricatures. Number four, biblical wisdom. I commit to having my views challenged by the biblical story rather than using the Bible to proof text my predetermined positions. Number five, fruitful speech. I commit to engaging in political discourse with speech that's marked by the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Six, humble learning. I commit to being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger as I seek to learn from the varied perspectives within the body of Christ. Seven, 
I commit to giving more attention to critiquing the potential flaws in my own political leanings, conduct, and sin than I give to scrutinizing others. Number eight, biblical justice. I commit to understanding and pursuing justice as I engage in civic life, not minimizing scripture's repeated call to justice and allowing scripture to critique popular conceptions of justice in our culture. Number nine, peacemaking. I commit to face-to-face -face conflict resolution rather than arguments on social media. And number 10, loving enemies. I commit to loving and praying for my so-called political enemies, especially those whom I have the hardest time loving and praying for. This includes a commitment to pray for our government leaders regardless of who wins the election. So with that said, uh, that's what we're committing to tonight. And now I want to introduce to you our speaker for tonight. He's gonna give his first talk on socialism, then we'll have a, a little discussion in breakout rooms, then he'll give his second talk on nationalism, and we'll have another discussion in breakout rooms, and then we'll come together for uh, Q&A with Bruce. But uh, Bruce Ashford is our speaker. He's a guy whom I have a ton of respect for. Uh, every time he comes to town, he and I, we get together and we have some of my favorite conversations of the year, and, um, he is, a, he is a professor who has helped shaped, shape me in my theological education as a visiting professor into the Missional Training Center slash Covenant Seminary. Uh, but he's a, a, a professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's written some really good books. One that I highly recommend uh, is his book here, One Nation Under God. You know that I've recommended that to you before. Uh, within such a small book is packed some of the meatiest ideas. Um, and he's written a number of other books. He, he, uh, he's appeared on C-SPAN, NPR, Fox Radio, um, Fox News Opinion. He's written for First Things, The Daily Signal, The Daily Caller, The Gospel Coalition. Whatever one of those things you need to hear to give him credibility, hear it now and listen to him. Um, and uh, he's one of my favorite public theologians and just a really good guy. So, Bruce, thanks so much for being here. We're going to let you go ahead and take it from here. Great. Thanks. So, uh, you guys have the opportunity to hear a real live southern accent tonight, which I'm told lowers my IQ by about 15 points in the ears of my listeners. So, uh, now, really grateful to be able to speak here. I've been asking to speak at Redemption Tempe for years, and Jim has always said to me, Bruce, you're not ready to speak to this group. And I said, well, you know, I've been the dean of the faculty of the seminary, speaking to a lot of churches. He said, Bruce, you know, just, you're not ready to speak to this group. I said, well, I've, you know, it's a faith and politics rally. I want to, uh, you know, talk that I want to give. I've been a columnist for national outlets, and I've been a speechwriter for elected officials, and I've written some books. I said, Bruce, you're not ready to speak to this group. I said, well, man, what do you want me to do? I'll speak for free. He said, Bruce, you are now ready to speak to this group. Dumb jokes aside, I am very pumped to be here. I love Jim, and I get to come to Phoenix every year to, you know, um, teach and speak at some different things. We're talking politics tonight. I think in America, Increasingly over the past 20 years, um, politics has been kind of like a cross between a war, a carnival, and a Hollywood movie, or maybe just a dumpster fire. It's just not a great scenario that we've got going on right now. Um, 
And so tonight what we're going to do is we're going to analyze two of the six major modern political ideologies. So um, if you want a list of the six, if I can get them all here, classical political liberalism is one, conservatism, progressivism, nationalism, socialism, and libertarianism. So, and what I'm going to argue is that anytime something reaches the level of an ideology, anytime a way of political thinking takes on ideological dimensions, becomes a sort of holistic and coherent view of reality and how to solve problems, then already you have um, idolatry present. So what is idolatry? In the Bible, um, idolatry is the worship of an idol, and the idol, an idol is anything that you absolutize. Any aspect of God's good creation to which you ascribe ultimacy, uh, that you absolutize, that you elevate above God himself. It could be sex or money or power or comfort or success or, or the approval of people. It could be material equality, socialism. It could be an ethnic group within a nation. That's nationalism. It could be individual autonomy and freedom and personal decision-making, freedom to do whatever the hell I want to do. Classical liberalism, libertarianism. It could be preservation of cultural heritage. That's conservatism. It could be um, uh, the sort of dismissal of cultural heritage and progress into a greater future, progressivism. So we can absolutize or ascribe ultimacy to any aspect of God's creation. And when we do that, we basically elevate a gift of God above the creator, above the giver. And that's what idolatry is. So individuals have idols, right? We have things we idolize. But then societies do too. Societies... In a society, you know, the collective idols of a society coalesce at the societal level to form political idols. And so we've picked uh, two ideologies tonight, socialism and nationalism, because those two have a lot of wind in their sails right now. So I'm going to start with socialism. <clears throat> socialism, is, socialism is a highly energized political movement in the U.S. right now, especially among millennials and gen Generation uh, Z. I'm not a millennial. I'm a, what, what am I, Generation X? Whatever. I forget. I'm 46. I'm old. Uh, so, uh, but millennial, uh, millennials really love socialism, and uh, other people do too. Bernie, for example, is not a millennial. <laughs> uh, all of our politicians are octogenarians. Not all of them, but many of them are nearly dead. Uh, but anyway, so it's energized. You've seen the rise of uh, the burn and AOC and Democratic Socialists of America. So it's time to pay attention to socialism as an, ide as an ideology. Now, there's many varieties of it. Some varieties of socialism are violent and socially revolutionary. They want to burn social and cult cultural institutions to, to the ground and restart them because they view sin as being entirely systemic. Not if sin is not located in the human heart, it's entirely in warped cultural institutions. But you have other forms of socialism that are more benign. They're not looking for a violent overthrow. It's gonna be no bloodshed. It's gonna be more gradual. So lots of kinds of socialism. I'm gonna focus on Marxism because it's the most famous form and I think probably the purest form of socialism. I'll focus on that tonight, but then I'm gonna loop back around to some American versions of socialism, okay? So I'm gonna, with, with this, I'm gonna be, begin by summarizing Karl Marx's life and thought. I think a lot of time when socialism gets treated, Karl Marx get, gets ignored and if he gets ignored, he gets misrepresented. 
So we're gonna pay attention to him for a minute. Um, I'm gonna show that I think he had good intentions, but that his ideology has disastrous consequences historically. And anytime, you, your anytime you've got an idol, you're gonna have disastrous consequences. So any of the modern ideologies, to the extent they're ideological, uh, when you implement them, they're gonna be a disaster. That'll be my argument. And then I'll show some of the negative things that have happened because of um, uh, the, the, the idol present in Marx's ideology. So let's start with Marx. Who was he? Karl Marx was born into a Jewish family. He briefly was a Christian. He wrote some very beautiful prose about Christianity and about the atonement. You may not have known that. He became an atheist in the beer gardens in Germany. I'm not saying anything negative about the beer gardens. I'm only saying that it was negative he became an atheist. All right, well, he became an atheist. And when, when he became an atheist, he said something like this. I'm just paraphrasing. Well, listen, if there's not a God on the outside of this world who's going to step into the world and provide a salvation, then we as human beings are going to have to provide a salvation inside of this world. And what he did, because he had such an intimate knowledge of the Jewish and Christian story, is that he created an ideology that has a narrative that kind of parallels the Bible's narrative. It's really fascinating. There's a God, there's an evil, there's a, a kind of a demonic, there's a, there's a type of salvation, there's a, there's a utopia, kind of a heaven, there's a, a, a view of humanity, there's a view of salvation. And so that's what we're going to work through. Um, so what did Marx think? Marx was what we could probably call an economic determinist. Uh, he believed that the economic dimension of uh, life determined or almost determined what happened, okay? So very, very important. He placed a very heavy emphasis on it, so much so that he believed that human beings weren't really free thinkers, that you were kind of pigeonholed and controlled by your economic status for the most part. Maybe there's some exceptions, but your economic status and the way you experience work and labor determines the way you think. So you're not a free thinker. Um, he critiqued capitalism and said, now, now the form of capitalism that Marx knew was a uh, French capitalism and it was during the industrial revolution. And it was a very kind of bastardized version of Marxism, of, of capitalism. It was bad. You, you, you were working children and parents in uh, sweatshops in factories, 12 hours a day, 14 hours a day. So he recognized some very real wrongs. But as I'll show in a minute, I think he threw the, the baby out with the bathwater. Um, he argued that the free market would self-destruct and that the working class would overthrow the ownership class. And I can't make, I, I, we just don't have time for me to give the lecture as if I were teaching in a class, but basically argued that the working class would rebel, that a few of the rich class would join them and that they would, um, they would win and they would gain control and that eventually what would happen is under socialism that the state would wither away. There'd really be no government hardly. That people would be materially equal so they would be very happy and there would eventually be a utopia uh, with no government, no coercion, no military, no need for a police force, that, that kind of thing. So, um, where do we agree with Marx? Um, well, and, and so, you know, you can always, there's always points of agreement with any ideology with which we disagree. And the reason is this, because when the evil one, when Satan works to inspire a false ideology, he never has his own facts. He hasn't created anything. He always has to use God's facts. And every ideology is 
every proponent of an ideology is onto something, something true, something real. They've identified a real problem. They've identified an aspect of a real solution. And so with Marx, I would say, I want to commend, uh, commend his compassion, his desire to do away with poverty. He saw some very serious problems with the Industrial Revolution, some very serious flaws with kind of crony capitalism, if you will. He wanted to uphold human dignity, kind of. He thought that our thought was determined, that we couldn't think for ourselves, so that's not dignity. But he, he wanted people to have a baseline of material wealth where they could care for themselves, and that's good. Uh, he valued labor, which is good. I mean, God is the one who designed humans to labor, to till the soil, have dominion, rule the world, take care of it. And then finally, I agree with Marx that when you see immoral agents corrupting the market, you should put a stop to it. That's where I agree. But let's talk about Marxism, as we will later, uh, ethno-nationalism as a false religion. <clears throat> Marx, uh, so what you want to do when you see an ideology is you want to ask what thing has been elevated to the level of a god? What has been absolutized? And for Marx, it's material equality. He made it an idol. The most important thing, the absolute most important thing is for everybody to have the same amount of stuff. Because if somebody else has more stuff than me, that robs me of my dignity. And so uh, I would just argue that that's misguided, that um, the main thing we're not arguing for is material equality. I think what the Bible teaches us to argue for is, is flourishing. And that even in the new heavens and the new earth, there's not gonna be material equality. I mean, we've got equality of value before God. God values us um, in an equal kind of a manner. But um, there's not going to be material equality in heaven. I mean, you've got hints that some people have more crowns than others, whatever that means. Seems heavy to wear a crown all the time. I think I'll pass. It says that other people will sit closer to Jesus than some will, but there'll be no jealousy. So equality shouldn't be the number one thing. It shouldn't drive us. Um, Another criticism of Marx is that it is a totalizing ideology. It is totalizing in that it wants to remake and redo every institution and culture, kind of almost burn it all down and start over again. And then it also is radical, meaning it wants to reconstruct society from the roots up. So it's a comprehensive worldview like a religion. So here's what I want to do. I want to take Christian doctrine for a moment and show you the Marxist socialist parallel to Christian doctrine. So the God for Marx is material equality. The evil or the demonic in Marxism is, is um, uh, material inequality and the class struggle that happens, the kind of wrestling match between rich and poor. I grew up financially disadvantaged. So I, I get that perspective. We weren't the poorest of the poor, but we qualified for, uh, you know, reduced lunch. So I, you know, get it. But um, he identified that as the greatest evil, and I don't agree. Uh, what is salvation for him? Salvation for him is Marxist ideology and revolution. His church, so to speak, is pockets of classless people in the midst of an evil capitalist world. His priesthood is the Communist Party. His ethic is to spare nothing, including violence, to achieve a socialist state. His end times is a communist utopia where the state withers away and there's a classless society and there's no more violence. Evil faith withers away. And then history for him is a closed system. 
There's nobody outside of history who intervenes in history, who gives meaning to history, who gives a transcendent moral framework uh, within history. Um, if I would read, uh, got a couple minutes here, just a couple. Peter Kraft, a philosopher at Boston uh, College writes, Marxism retains all the structural and emotional factors of biblical religion in a secularized form. Marx, like Moses, is the prophet who leads the new chosen people, the proletariat, out of the slavery of capitalism into the promised land of communism across the Red Sea of bloody worldwide revolution and through the wilderness of temporary dedicated suffering for the party, the new priesthood, the messianic tone of communism, and here's the quote, makes it structurally and emotionally more like a religion than any other political system except for fascism. Fascism is closely related to nationalism, which is what, what we're going to treat next. So what are some of the ironies and consequences and negative things that have happened historically when Marxist socialism has been put in place? Well, the first is that it fails its own benchmark, which is history, is that it, it, uh, it undermines human flourishing. Almost everywhere, it destroys economic conditions and, and induces poverty um, society-wide, except for the one-tenth of one percent who are the Communist Party leaders, and they're fabulously wealthy, so enormous wealth gap. It is tend to lead to oppression um, of individual liberties. If you look at Russia, China, uh, any, any number of Cuba, any number of other countries, um, uh, in, in Russia, just from 1921 to 1953 alone, this, according to the Soviet history books, not the American ones, 1.7 million citizens were killed in the concentration camps for dissenting. Uh, 800,000 were executed, 400,000 died from resettlement. So, um, Marx's understanding of human nature misunderstands human nature and thinks that evil doesn't arise first and foremost in the human heart. It is primarily systemic and, cult and, and located in warped cultural institutions. I would come back and say that it's both. You know, it arises out of the human heart and then embeds itself in cultural institutions. So there's definitely systemic um, uh, factors here. Uh, Marxism is, is morally relativistic normally. Um, whatever best serves the revolution is good and whatever hinders it is bad. And so, if we want to see our society flourish, I don't think it'll be through Marxist socialism or even other forms of socialism, which we can uh, talk about in just a second. It'll be only when someone greater uh, is on the throne. So uh, in terms of American forms of socialism, I'm gonna have to go really quickly, but you can ask some questions during Q&A if you want. Um, Bernie is not really a socialist. Uh, he says he is, but he's a capitalist. He's a capitalist who has incorporated some socialist um, aspects into his program and I there the kind of respect that I have for him is he seems to be really he seems to be pretty sincere about it he seems to care and uh, you know he seems to not be uh, just blown smoke the real socialists in America the ones that are more pure are the democratic socialists of America and those are the ones who want to um, uh, you know um, the government to take over utilities medical care and utilities and that kind of thing and want to get rid of the Senate because the Senate is hierarchical. So the DSA is, um, is a, a more pure form of nationalism. Uh, most of the folks in the DSA, actually none of them that I've heard of have been willing to encourage the kind of violence on the level that we've seen in other socialist revolutions. 
So uh, still is not quite as pure or as some of the historic uh, forms of socialism. So there are some comments on socialism. And I'm going to hand back off to Jim. I think we're going to take a minute and have some sort of an exercise, and then we'll come back, and I'm going to try to give a beating to nationalism also. Ethno-nationalism is the belief that the ethno-nation is uh, the most natural unit of culture and that there will always be one privileged ethnic group in any given country. <clears throat> and an ethno-nationalist is going to want to focus on the uniqueness of their national culture, especially the privileged ethnic group, because in almost any nation state, you'll have a privileged ethnic group, but you have other ethnic groups. In some nation states, there is no privileged ethnic group, at least not officially. In America, officially, there's no privileged ethnic group. But in other countries, such as Israel, there is officially a privileged ethnic group. In, um, so in ethno-nationalism, there's a um, appreciation of positive aspects of the national culture, even if the positive aspects that are mentioned are uh, imaginary, even if it's not really as positive as they think, or maybe it's real. It makes sense that different cultures would have different strengths. The Bible points out different people in the ancient Near East that, that, that were better at one thing than another. You know, some of them were better at building ships and some that were better at building weapons, others that were better at agriculture, you know, and so forth. So they emphasize what's good about their, their, their ethnic uh, group. Um, but then unfortunately, usually have a double standard of justice, almost always. And they privilege the titled, entitled ethnic group above the other ethnic groups. And that's going to be a large part of the problem of ethno-nationalism, although there's other problems. That'll be a, a large part. So a second use of the word nationalism um, can be described as civic nationalism. And usually this means just something like patriotism. And there can be good and bad forms of patriotism. Um, so, I mean, a, um, a good form of civic nationalism or patriotism would just be someone who says, you know what? I live in a, a nation state that's flawed, like other nation states, but I'm grateful for it. God put me here. I recognize the good things about it. You know, in the United States, maybe it's the entrepreneurial spirit has brought some good to the world and some bad, but some good. Maybe it's uh, that there have been some genuine liberties extended, even though unfortunately for many, many years, they were not extended to, to black Americans or to brown Americans. And so, uh, you know, a healthy patriotism, if you want to use the word, or civic nationalism, is a desire to recognize whatever is good in a given nation state and to admire it and be grateful for it, but also to be appropriately critical. You know, if you can't be critical of the negative, then you're just, you know, the hypocritical and bigoted special interest arm of your country. You know, you don't have much integrity. And so, um, civic nationalism is a second variety of nationalism. And then you have economic nationalism. Now, economic nationalism has only risen recently in relation to economic internationalism or globalization, globalism. And um, globalization, you know, is kind of the recognition and even the, uh, the push for everything to be hyper-connected and for us to be hyper aware that we're all hyper connected. And it's a kind of a, globalization wants to, as much as possible, do away with borders. 
and for there to be a free flow of the market. And you find it on the left and the right. You find it in Wall Street and you find it on the left, Wall Street right and on the left. Economic nationalism has always been there. I mean, you've seen it like with Pat Buchanan back in the 80s, paleoconservatism. I don't know if you remember old Pat. Uh, um, but economic nationalism says, hey, wait a minute. Globalization uh, takes jobs away from working class Americans who are not prepared to train themselves for the new jobs, which are for people with college education or people with really good people skills or people who are te technologically savvy. What can we do to protect people in our own nation? And that's been the Bernie Sanders revolution and the Donald Trump revolution. I think that there's a lot of overlap. In political theory, there's horseshoe theory, which is that the far left and the far right meet each other. And you see a lot of Bernie fans who ended up voting for Trump whenever um, the pantsuit was nominated. Is it okay if I have a little fun? Um, Donald Trump's skin is orange. I can make fun of him too, about many things. Uh, but anyway, there's horseshoe theory. And one of the things that's happened is you see on the left and the right, frustrating working class people, white, black, and brown, very upset about the way the global economy has treated them. So that's a, a, a third type of uh, nationalism. So how do I critique these different forms of nationalism? How do we critique it? And if you want to later, you can ask me about exceptionalism. That's another ism that people sometimes confuse with nationalism. We can talk about that. Um, well, first of all, let's talk about why nationalism arises, okay? There are a number of reasons, but one of the main reasons that nationalism arises is that modern political ideologies have focused on the individual, have been very individualistic. And on the left, the individualism is re primarily related to the generals, to gender and sex. On the right, it's primarily uh, related to um, the economy. So you've got this libertarianism of the left and a libertarianism of the right. But either way, the individual is basically viewed as either a sexual unit or an economic unit, a one-dimensional chooser in a marketplace. And that is a very dissatisfying thing for people who God created to live in community. And so that kind of individualism leaves citizens longing for community and nationalism and socialism both give you community. And so I think that's one of the main reasons people um, are driven in these two directions. So what is a critique of nationalism? Well, anytime you elevate the nation to an ultimate status, you're gonna have big problems because the nation is not God. God is God and the nation is not God. And there's a tendency to do that. I mean, all through history for kings and presidents to have per military parades and glorify the nation, go to war just to enlarge the boundaries of the nation, uh, heap praise upon the nation, how great it is, how glorious, how amazing, far better than other nations. If other nations would only be like us, the world would be so much better. And this is idolatrous. Now, it's probably true that different nations have some real unique um, aspects where they are better at something in general than other nations are, and that's fine. 
I see no need for us to lie and say that all people are equal in their abilities or all cultures are equal in what they're good at. I just don't think it's true. We're equal in how much God loves us, but uh, there are distinctives. Um, the British are terrible at food. That just You just don't want to eat what they cook. Is that okay to say? But you definitely want their accent, and they're pretty good at some other things too. Um, <clears throat> so ethno-nationalism, if I could critique it really quickly, <clears throat> I think, you know, it violates a genuinely Christian theory of politics. You know, we live in a 21st century democratic republic with a number of different ethnic groups, many different ethnic groups, and each ethnic group needs to be treated, each person within each ethnic group needs to be treated as somebody who possesses an inherent dignity given by God and that they do not receive privilege because of their ethnic heritage. Um, so in ethno-nationalism, the God is the privileged ethnic group, the evil or the demon, the Satan is inequality, is, uh, excuse me, is e equality between groups. They don't want equality, they want inequality, they want to be at the top of the pecking order. The salvation that is provided is a political upholding of ethnic heritage, even at the expense of other groups. And then the kind of the end times is a situation in which that ethnic group's primacy can never be challenged. Um, that's ethno-nationalism, and I think it should be rejected. There was a time when there was one good ethno-nationalism, and that was the nation of Israel, and that was only because God was her king. If you want to ask questions about that, we'll talk about it. But that era was over. God was the king. God was in charge. God was using Israel to be a light to the nations. And the United States of America is not a light to the nations. No nation today is a light to the nations. The light to the nations is the church. Right? And so um, the second type of nationalism, economic nationalism, I'm more pragmatic on that. And I'm not an economist. I would just say, I think we should fight for our working class people. And um, you know, we should be careful shipping jobs overseas uh, so quickly when um, uh, people here in their 50s and 60s who aren't ready to retire yet or have jobs taken from them and can't retrain. But I'm not an economist, so I can't figure that out that well. But I'd be a lot more pragmatic on the economic nationalism than the ethno-nationalism. Then civic nationalism or patriotism is tricky. Um, if by patriotism you mean a gratitude for your nation and an affection for whatever is good, then great. But, but if it's uncritical, if it's unwilling to call out injustice and what's, what's bad and wrong, then it's not great and we reject it. So let me conclude with a quote by a man named Leslie Newbigin, a man named Leslie. He's like 5'3". He was a, a little man, but I, uh, um, how did my video go off? There we go, I'm back. Newbegin wrote, it is good to love and serve the nation in which God has set us. We need more and not less true patriotism. This is a British theologian, been influential on, on Jim Mullins. I don't know if you consider that a positive or a negative, but he has been, all right? And he says, but to give absolute commitment to the nation is to go into bondage. Family and kinship are precious gifts to be loved and cherished, but racism is a corruption of what is good. And so I think that's a good way to end our, our section on um, nationalism for the time being. And I'll hand back off to 
uh, to Jim.